0: Let's do open God's Word together because, say with me, church, it's the Word that does the work. So we've been singing the Word. We're going to look into the Word, understand it, apply it, get up under it. And so both at this campus here and Carlisle campus, let's open our Bibles. Uh, If you're new, it's the book of Philippians. We're in that book studying there. So go ahead and find Philippians. And let me welcome all of our kids into this service as well. I know this is a week and they're in with us. And all the kids are at the Carlisle campus too. So to all the children in that area and all the ones here, just glad you're in with us. You should have a sermon notes sheet that will help you stay attentive. I don't think you'll need it that much. I'm not that boring. And today I've done a few extra things to help you pay attention and alert. I think you will. So make sure your parents take good notes, will you? You should have your Bible there as well as your journal. And what I want to do to begin with, help set the stage for what we're going to be seeing, is in a second I want to show you a picture. I'm going to count down three, two, one. I'll say picture, and then I want you to just tell me what the object is that you see. Don't try to describe the people don't talk about uh, living things in the picture. Just show me, just just verbally say out loud the inanimate object that you see. It's a really simple, it's not a trick question. I'm not setting you up. I'm helping you succeed, okay? So three, two, one, picture. Man, perfect. I thought we'd hear more teeter-totters, but we all kind of said the word what? Seesaw, Seesaw exactly. And when you see the word seesaw, what are some other words you think of? There are probably words like balance, uh, equal. Some of you may think of a name of the kid who would, when he's on the bottom, jump off and you'd slam the other side, right? You may think of that irritating third grader, right? <laughs> Here's what I want you to see about a seesaw is that it is a picture of really the main point that Paul is making in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Now, the word seesaw is not in the Greek. It's not some hidden truth. It is the, a picture of the concept of balance and equity, of equality, of centeredness. We could even say the word consistency. that that he's going to um, say to us as believers, this is what should characterize your life. I'm going to show you that in these verses. I'll take you to class for a little bit. We'll look into our lab. Hope you have your journals, your notes with you. That won't take a long time, and then I'll ask you four pretty stinging diagnostic questions to see how we're doing on this. So what do you say we go to our lab? Can we? Philippians chapter one, verses 27 to 30. Let's look here. We'll kind of tear this text apart. Paul makes the point in verse 27 that we are to live our life worthy. Now, the reason I just read that first is because that is the main imperative in this paragraph, all right? He says just one thing, This is just one word, by the way, in the original. It's the word mono. So some translations say only. You may have a King James that says that, I believe it is. Some say uh, whatever happens or one thing concerns me. These are all really good translations of this one simple word. And Paul is trying to draw things to a point, to a conclusion. He's trying to narrow our focus. And so he says one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy. That's the key phrase that everything is kind of hinged around. So in your notes, in your Bible, I would star that, circle it, square it, lipstick it, you know, whatever you want to do to it. Make sure you understand that this is what really Paul is aiming at, to live a life worthy. Now, within this imperative, there's even a more, can I say... um, I don't want to say more key word, but there's a a word that helps us understand why it's the imperative and what its point is. It's the word worthy. This really means to live your life in balance. It's the word axios. It means to live your life in a fitting way, in an equal fashion, in a consistent manner. Now, hopefully, right you're thinking, Todd, balanced with what? Fitting to what? Consistent with what? Watch this. The gospel of Christ, because that's where we're citizens. And notice that we are something here. We believe something here. So we're to live in balance to what we are and what we believe. So you all get this. This is just Paul's way of saying, make sure that what you are called Matches your conduct. Could somebody say amen? Not hard to grasp. Do you see the idea of balance now? Don't be out of balance. Don't be off kilter. Don't say one thing and do another. Don't be called a Christian and live like a pagan. He says, live your life equal to, in keeping with, centered on, in balance with the gospel, That's what you believe, and as a result, you're a citizen of heaven. In plainest terms, live a life with no hypocrisy. So this is Paul's main point. May our conduct and our calling match. What we say and what we do is to be balanced. This is very similar to Ephesians chapter 4. Where he begins that chapter by saying this, live your life worthy of the vocation to which you have been called. Almost mirror language. So Paul, I would say, is quite adept at writing the churches and calling them, exhorting them, commanding them to actually live who they say they are. The implication I believe, is already felt. You say, what's the implication, Todd? That something is trying to knock you off balance. That there may be something or someone or situations that would tempt you not to live a balanced life, to not be what you say you are, to pretend to be one thing, over here, and another thing over there. You can just feel that in the, in the command, can't you? Otherwise, why would Paul say to them, hey, live your life in a fitting way to what you say you are? Why would he call them to this posture if there wasn't this implication that there must be something trying to, you know, jump off the bottom part of the seesaw and make us crash on the other side, right? To push us off balance, to make us live hypocritically. He's going to expand on that in a minute. Just understand, you can begin to feel the implication that something could be difficult. And so I want you to live your life in a balanced, fitting fashion where your walk and your talk matches. I think we've arrived at this understanding. I think you're with me. Here's why. Paul says next, Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are. Now, notice he mentions three actions here. Standing firm, contending together, and not being frightened. Now, we'll explain those in a minute. But just understand, as Paul's writing this, he's saying to them, I want you to live your life in a balanced, fitting way that your talk and your walk match so when I hear about you later, I'll know that you are doing three things. It must be that these three things are modifiers of or ways to live a worthy life. Are you tracking with me? So we're going to get a little more descriptive now, a little more detailed. Here's how we live in a consistent matching, fitting, balanced way. He says, first of all, we are to be standing firm, and I'll just keep it in the past tense right now. He says these Philippian believers, you're to stand firm in one spirit and one accord. So can I just say, I think what I see here is, is a tenacity and a togetherness, don't you? Like standing firm, some of us like those words, don't we? Yeah, let's just get after it. And we're not budging, we're holding the line. But then he adds, in one spirit. In one accord. Let's make sure that as we're tenacious for our faith that we're not at each other's throats. <laughs> we're to stand together, me, we're to stand firm but in one spirit, in one accord. So these would modify the idea of standing firm. I just like the words tenacious and together. Then he says we're to be contending together. Now I would see this as the positive side of the next one, which is not being frightened. I see this is more the negative, and I don't mean negative as in it's bad. Just one is more of a a negative action to take or not to do something, and the positive is we're to contend together. So I believe continue together, and he says, of course, for the faith of the gospel, he's here calling for a verbal and visible witness, and often we try to split those two, don't we? But you can't contend for something if you don't own it, and you don't live it, and it's hard to contend for something if you don't voice it. So I think it's safe to say textually here, and practically, Paul here is saying, use your life and use your lips to make a case for the gospel. Contend, again, together. So the church as a whole, as well as individually, should be visibly and verbally making a strong case for why they are citizens of heaven, why they live in light of the gospel of Christ and why they believe in the gospel, why they take their stand on it, why they have faith in Christ. A visible verbal case together as a church for the gospel. A positive stance. So they're standing firm, they're contending together, and while they're doing this, they're not being frightened Watch the next three words, you'll love this, in any way. So there's a spectrum of fear that can sometimes rattle a believer, right? But Paul here says it doesn't matter if it's a small amount of action that makes you afraid from our opponents or a large threat from them. Not in any way should you be frightened by your opponents. So there's probably not something to do here. This is the mindset that we should have a mindset not of fear, Paul told Timothy, but of power and love. First 1 Timothy 1, seven, I believe it is. It's this mindset, I'm not going to be afraid, that enables us then to contend together and stand firm together. When we do these three things, I think they are the essence of living a life worthy. When you see someone positively proactively, verbally and visibly making a case for the gospel and for believing and following Jesus, not being afraid of those who would criticize them or threaten them, and doing that in a firm way with others, tenaciously and yet together, you tend to say, wow, they really act on what they believe. They walk their talk. There's no hypocrisy there. Their life is very balanced. Their behavior and belief lines up. It's congruous. Are you with me? That's how this is going. So this is not hard to understand. If I had to give this in two words, these three things, I would say what Paul is calling for is courageous unity. Just taking these three things, I think a church and a christian who wants to live a life that balances what they're called and how they act, you know. They must have courageous unity. Can you say those two words with me? Courageous unity. So follow the progression with me. Just to make sure we kind of track together here briefly. Consistency is shown through courageous unity, and the implication then is that there's a difficulty going on. Otherwise, you wouldn't need courage, right? So we could say these three words. There's, there's a courageousness happening. Excuse me. There's a consistency being shown through a courageous unity in the middle of a difficulty. He uses the word opponents. So again, I'll just lay that out for you real briefly. There's a consistency being shown through courageous unity in the middle of a difficulty. It's kind of where Paul is so far. And then he makes a a staggering statement. It's the end of verse 28. He says, this is a sign. Now, hopefully as a a reader of the Bible, you may be wondering, what does this refer to? Is this referring to the fact that we're not afraid? Could be, by the way. Like, when you see someone unafraid, you're like, well, that's a sign. Well, like, why aren't they afraid? Like, it says something. It's a token. It's a a signal. It's sending up a message, isn't it? Like, you're not afraid of what they're going to say or what they might do? The word this could refer to the fact that they are together in, in a unified fashion. The jury's out, technically. I don't think it's we actually know, I tend to think the word this refers to the entire verses here. It's this posture of courageous unity. It's standing firm, continuing together, not being afraid. It's living your life worthy. It's, it's all of this combined. I think Paul is pointing back to his previous sentence and saying this general posture, it's a sign. It's a, it's a, a signal It's proof. And notice what it's proof of. Of destruction for them. Them, of course, goes back to the opponents. But it's a sign also of your salvation. So can we just be very frank here? Paul here draws a line straight down the middle that there are insiders and there are outsiders. There are those who are Saved, and there are those who are not saved. Not everyone's in. So I'm not trying to say God doesn't want all men to be saved, all women to be saved. I'm not saying that at all. I don't hear what I'm not saying. But I am simply saying to you that in this verse, Paul is saying, speaking of opponents to the gospel, their end is destruction. And when they see you live a balanced, consistent life with courageous unity, it says something to them. Like, why? Why aren't you afraid? Here's why you're not afraid. Because God has saved you. You're a recipient of salvation. You're not headed for destruction. So what have you got to be afraid of? Now, there's no reason to be impolite in your courage. There's no reason to be brash or harsh in your consistency, but neither is there a reason to be afraid because, watch this, God has saved you. So what men think about you or what men can do to you matters none. God has you. He's holding you. He knows you. He is securely in charge of your life. He's got his grip on you. And Paul here says, when you're consistently courageous in a unified fashion with your church, when your life and your lips, they match, he says, this is a sign that God has saved you. You can almost just see and and, and feel the smile on Paul's face, can't you? Like this is a sign of our salvation, and this is from God. So I love the way Paul, and you know I've got to get here, takes no credit, amen? This is one of the reasons that I love testimonies that begin with the phrase, God saved me when. I love testimonies, love hearing yours, the moment that God intersected your life and by his sovereign grace caused you to respond to the message of the gospel and believe. I love just starting that with him. God saved me because you know what? You didn't find God. You didn't negotiate with your creator. You were lost on your way to hell, headed to separation from God. You were on your way to destruction, but God chased you down. His mercy hunted you. He gave you the faith and the grace to respond to his message, and you believed God saved you. Amen? I love testimonies where God alone gets the credit. And so because we are saved by God, thus not afraid to live courageously unified with other believers so that we have this consistent life in front of our opponents, Paul then says, this really is what you've been gifted. You've been gifted this opportunity to live consistently and courageously in front of those who would mock you and criticize you, to, to live with your church in unity in front of those who would, who would despise you and threaten you and oppose you. This is what he says next. This is amazing. He says, for, so that word tells us, no, it's gonna be more explanation about the previous phrase, right? For it's been granted to you. That's like a gift word, isn't it? Like God's giving us a gift. It's the gift of salvation, but notice how Paul now amplifies the gift of salvation, and this is so good for the American church. It has been granted to you. It's been bestowed upon you. It's been gifted to you that you not only believe in him, right? So that's what we normally say. Yes, God has saved me. I believe in Christ. So through Christ or because of Christ, God has granted to me belief. Amen. And often we stop there. Paul didn't stop there. He says, yes, God has saved you. And because of Christ, he's gifted you, granted you belief, but also to suffer for him. Oh, my. See, we love to amen the belief, but we, oh, my, the suffer. Paul sees salvation as one, believing and suffering. You need about 10 hours to contemplate that and digest that. I'm not gonna give it to you right now, but you need it. Do you see this phrase where Paul equalizes two things under the heading of salvation? He says, yes, God has saved you. And on Christ's behalf, he has gifted you the opportunity to believe and to suffer. This is a freeze frame moment. He shows them that what they're going through is actually both of these. Notice verse 30 as we wrap this paragraph up. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. So Paul not only equates two things with salvation, believing and suffering, they come with the package. He says, I know that you've been going through this because you are uh, enduring the same thing that you saw in me, and you're sharing that. with He uses the word same struggle. Now, let's review. Pastor Travis laid this out for us a couple weeks ago. What was Paul's struggle He was imprisoned, but as a result of his imprisonment, what advanced? The gospel. He says, even the imperial guard is here, they're hearing the message. And so Paul said, you know what? Other preachers are getting more confident to preach the gospel, even if they're preaching from bad motives. I'm going to rejoice in that because at the end of the day, Through all the negative things happening, through all the obstacles and difficulty, the gospel's going forward. So in my difficulty, I see the gospel advancing. I'm happy about that, he says. So here he brings them into that and says, hey, you're getting opposed. You have folks who are standing in opposition against you, so you're joining me now in the struggle, and guess what? Your suffering, it can result in gospel advancement as well. In other words, we're partners together. And whether it's your difficulty or mine, when we see gospel progress, we will be joyful. Because that's really the result that matters. This is an amazing paragraph, isn't it? Hope you kind of follow the flow of what's been going on here. A consistency is called for. It's evidenced in three things. We'll sum it up with the words courageous unity. When our opponents see that, they realize you actually do belong to God. We don't belong to God. They should be the ones who are afraid, not us. And this opportunity for our salvation to be evidenced Part of it is the fact that we actually are suffering. We are being opposed. We are being mocked or ridiculed or despised or threatened. Throw whatever word you want in there. That's actually part of what it means to be a Christian. But actually, don't fret about that. That's actually the way the gospel often advances. And we join in with others who are also in difficulty. And we share in these struggles. But at the same time, we rejoice and are glad Because what matters most is the news of Jesus getting to more people. This really is what's happening here. Now, as I think about this paragraph, I want to mention something to you. Because I'm still mentally, I have been for several days, really stuck on 29 that it has been gifted to us. Not only to believe, but also to suffer. This is what knocks most people off the seesaw. This is where the, um, I don't want to say threat. This is where, in other words, something's trying to throw you off balance. Remember that was kind of felt in the first verse? Here's now is where it's stated. It's when we suffer for the fact of being a Christian. It's when our opponents get the best of us, and they jump off the bottom of the seesaw, and ours comes crashing down, and we fall off, and use whatever picture you want. This is what throws us off balance. It's suffering. It's why James would say in chapter one, that when anyone endures trials of any kind, don't blame God. One of the first human reactions is to point vertically and say, hey, what are you doing up there? what did I do wrong? I don't deserve this. And we want to try to often blame God, and that's a spiritually dysfunctional response. It has negative consequences. Paul here is saying to the Philippians, stay consistent, be courageously unified with your church, and know that this is a good sign that you belong to God. And when you encounter these opponents, when you encounter this type of ridicule, be aware, uh, that's when you'll be tempted to be imbalanced, to live with hypocrisy because you'll want to get out of the suffering. You'll want to kind of get away from what's causing you to be ridiculed. You want to kind of abandon the label, the moniker, the position which is causing the suffering. Paul says don't do that. That's not a consistent lifestyle. You are called a citizen of heaven. You have believed the gospel. Now live like it. And that includes enduring suffering as a follower of Christ. The good news is when we do that, it is a sign and it's a great witness. So there's a lot going on here about our credibility, about our identity. And I just want to encourage you, when you encounter this type of temptation, to uh, live in an imbalanced way. I know we wouldn't call it that in a moment, but that's what it is. It's Satan trying to deceive you and tempt you to take an easy route when in reality, you're gonna live inconsistently and hypocritically. When that comes your way, I wanna encourage you, do not live a life of imbalance, inequality, inconsistency, hypocrisy. Don't do it. No matter what the world and the culture and your opponents say about you, no matter what they do to you, church, you and me together, let us hold fast to our confession of faith. Can I sum this up for you? Not the whole message yet, just the classroom portion. Let's just take these four verses. Let me sum them up in a sentence. I think the main themes, write this down. Kids, write it on your sermon notes guide. Adult your journals, put it in your Bible. This really is the take-home truth from these verses. A life of consistency, and I want to define that, okay? Courageous unity in the middle of difficulty. Can you say that definition with me? courageous unity in the middle of difficulty. I think that really is the core essence of consistency. It's not hard to be consistent when everything's going good, right? But when it becomes hard and someone's trying to knock you off, that's when it can get rough. So consistency, which is courageous unity in the middle of difficulty, is an opportunity to display our God-granted identity. How about you say it with me? I know you may still be writing it, maybe get a picture of it, but can you say this with me? A life of consistency, which is courageous unity in the middle of difficulty is an opportunity to display our God-granted identity. And based on this text, here's your identity, a suffering saint who rejoices in gospel progress. That's what the text says that you've been gifted the privilege of not only believing, but also suffering. So hello, suffering saints. Our desire is to see the gospel go forth and make progress. And if that means suffering, difficulty, then we will rejoice in that. We will not abandon ship or paint ourselves a different color Pretend we're a different person, we will hold fast to our confession. Now, I'm hoping at this point that you're asking yourself this question, well, am I consistent? How would I know if I am? Like, Are there any diagnostic tools or questions that I could ask myself in light of this text to find out if I'm actually consistent? If I'm living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ as a citizen of heaven, if my walk and talk are matching, if there's congruency, if there's balance, in light of these four verses, are there some diagnostic questions that could at least steer me in the right direction? I'm so glad you asked all those questions. Let me give you four of them. And this is where it could get very personal. Not intentionally in an odd way. I'm not trying to call you out, but I've worked through these questions. I've been under their weight. I, I want to bring you into that uh, with me. Okay? Question one, do I readily apologize slash repent when I'm wrong? You see, we love tenacity, but often we don't love togetherness. But in Paul's world... They're joined. We're standing firm in one spirit, in one accord. So I just want to encourage you as you think about your tenacity, your boldness, do you also have a quickness that when you're not right with the body of Christ with whom you're standing, When there is relational sin between you and a brother or sister, are you quick to do your best to make that right by apologizing, by repenting? It's a good diagnostic question to see if you're consistent because if you would say to me, Todd, I'm never wrong. I think your humor and your laugh's answer the question. like That person is not consistent because everyone has sin, deals with sin. First John chapter one, if we say we have no sin, then we're untruthful. We lie to ourselves. Verses seven to nine. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. So there's this sense in which and I think walking the light they refers to is defined by an openness about our sin and honesty about our, our weaknesses and when we're wrong. And when God reveals those, when other people come to us in humility and bring up a situation or a moment or an encounter, are we quick to, to apologize and repent? That's one of the diagnostic questions to ask yourself as you think about consistency. Pride is always a partner to hypocrisy. Second question. Do I faithfully engage with and endure for others even when it's tough? Remember, standing firm in one accord in one spirit, contending together for the faith of the gospel So just ask yourself this question. Do I faithfully engage with and endure for others even when it's tough? Uh, Let me just get really personal now. I I heard this question at several fireside chats. It's a good question too, by the way. Um, Some folks are asking about giving, and and we don't always do a great job explaining how to give at First Family. It's through these boxes in the back, and there's some by the door. And then most of our folks, I think, well above 60% give online, So we don't take offerings. We never have like an offering box. We do take offerings. We want to contribute our resources to the work of God's mission, but we don't collect it in a maybe a fashion that we pass a plate. We never have done that. Nothing wrong with that. That's just not what we've done. And so as a result, sometimes it's hard to know, like, how do we give it first family? And I have been accused of not preaching about giving very much. Maybe not accused, maybe complimented, whichever one you want to use there. I don't know how you want to take that. Um, We have had a very generous church. I do talk about giving more than maybe you realize, but I probably don't preach whole sermons or even series on giving very much. Our church's fashion is to take the text. As it unfolds, we tackle it and we get up under it. So let me say to you this. In light of that, I'll just approach that topic this morning. Are you giving? Because often it's easy to talk about the church should and I wish the church would, but if you ask, hey, how's your giving? Well, man, it's really tight right now. Oh, so you'd like a pass when it's tight, but there's no grace on the other side. That's kind of how that's heard. So I just want to ask you a question. Even though it's tight, are you sacrificially giving or or? Do you continue to serve and endure with others by your giving even when it's difficult to give? Do you hang in there with your body? I don't mean your physical body, your spiritual friends, your brothers and sisters. Are you hanging in there? Are you doing your share? Are you in the kitchen as well as the uh, dining room? Are you with me? Are you serving? Do you show up on Sundays and man, I love Sunday mornings. There's the cafe. I love that coffee. Man, Drop my kids off. I get a whole hour and 20 minutes to relax. I wish Todd would preach longer. I'd have more time, you know, like just to be alone. And then I'll see you next week. I don't do much else than that. Like, why not? Why aren't you enduring with and serving others in that same fashion? Like, there's a lot to do every week. We'd love to have you join in our collective efforts to see the gospel get to the nations. That happens through our efforts physically, physically our finances financially, our prayers spiritually. So I just want to make sure I broach this because it's easy to ask a question at Fireside Chat about that. But just be aware that it's really a two-way street here. We, We want to together, even when it's difficult, stay at the task with our hands on the plow. And the church said, amen. Question number three. Do I sacrificially defer for the sake of God's mission and gospel progress when necessary? This is a tough one because I don't think deference is always necessary. Do you know that? There's some areas in which you can have a different opinion. And I can have a different opinion, and we can get along great, and there's no reason for you to change or me to change. Wouldn't you agree with that? And there's not not every situation calls for someone to say, you know what, I'll defer to you on this one. The fact that 900 people can live with different opinions and preferences and personalities is, is, is a good thing. So I commend you. But when it is necessary, when leadership says, for the Best progress of the gospel in this situation or that situation, here's what we think is best to do. Are you, and am I, ready to defer? And by the way, in the last month, I was tracking this with our elders. We've had three conversations in which I did not win the conversation. Three of them. I was kidding with our elders the other day. I said, man, this is the third time I've, and we have a good laugh, and we're in total unity, complete unity. It's part of the conversation, but... If you were to think, well, they're just yes men or Todd gets his way. Actually, it's completely not true. Uh, I love those guys. And what was done was best for our church. So I'm glad that they didn't do just what I thought we should do. Are you hearing me? So when I say defer, I'm just pointing at you. I think it's something we all have to do. There are times we're like, man, that's, that's a good move. I like that. Other times, that's a Don't like that move, but it actually still may be a good move for the church. Are you with me? And one of the ways you can test your consistency and your courageous unity is a willingness when necessary to defer sacrificially for the sake of God's mission and gospel progress. How hard will you fight for your way? How hard will you strive for for God's gospel. They may not conflict, but when they do, which one wins in your life? God's gospel progress, or no, I gotta have my way. I told you it'd get a little more personal, didn't I? A little stinging. Last question is this Do I unashamedly and publicly align as a devoted follower of Jesus, even, uh, even when it's costly? Now, I could at this point do what I've been planning to do for four days. I could talk to you about the denomination that just this week voted to accept the LGBTQIA agenda into its leadership structures and ordained um, homosexuals and lesbians. I could do that. I could talk to you about the gender myth that's flooding our culture right now. There's a spectrum and it's fluid as opposed to biological and static. I could talk to you about how in the church there's just pervasive acceptance of divorce for any reason as opposed to the biblical understanding of marriage. I could discuss the epidemic of porn not just in our culture but in the pastorate. I was speaking with a gentleman recently who was gonna interview a candidate for their church. He said, what question should I ask? I said, ask him, does he look at porn? He said, I don't wanna ask that question. I said, oh, you must. He said, I don't wanna know the answer. I said, you need to know the answer. He said, why would you ask that? I said, because there's an epidemic among pastors, among church people, among men especially, in churches. I could talk to you about those things. But here's here's where I found some heavy conviction about Thursday night, Friday morning, that all of you would amen every one of those. And I would be glad about that. I would amen with you. But here's what I think is odd, that in those moments against the LGBTQIA plus community or the divorce-gone-wild community or in the sex-with-no-limits community or in the, any one of those environments, you'd all say, man, and more than likely, if pushed him to shove, you would stand, I hope, and wear your label as a disciple of Christ. I think you would. I hope you would. What I think is odd is that some of us can't even publicly align and unashamedly follow Jesus within the church. I, I was struck by this Friday as I was thinking through these illustrations and just how to talk to you about it. The Lord just said, Todd, there, there are many Christians who just say, "Yeah, I don't need to get baptized." And I want you to hear this. In the New Testament, baptism is the public sign of identification with Christ. So for someone to say, "I'm a Christian, but I'm not getting baptized," uh, that's imbalanced. That's incongruous, it's insincere, it's hypocritical. See, some of us are all worried about the culture. I just want to ask Christians to be Christians in the church. Like, could we just unashamedly say, yes, dunk me, I believe in Jesus. Could we say, I look for a small group. I look for homes where I can fellowship in a smaller way, much like Acts 2. We can fellowship and break bread together and converse and get to know each other. I'm not afraid to be known. It's amazing the amount of Christians who just are corner Christians. They avoid deep relationships. They, they, They run from any kind of accountability. So while I want to say to you and I want to believe in myself that if the worst thing happened with the culture, and we were even more at odds than we are now. We were face-to-face with our opposition. Well, I want to say, man, I'm confident we would not run from our confession. We would stand true in the word of God. We would remain steadfast. There are times I wonder, like, would we? It's hard to get some folks to even get baptized. It's difficult to find folks who just, just read the Bible. like. So I'm not griping at you, I'm actually bringing you in to a moment perhaps where maybe you'll have that like, wow, would I really be consistent if the chips from the line with my opponents, if I'm afraid to do it with those I call my brothers and sisters? I'm just asking the question, that's all. I want you to wrestle with it because really this gets to the heart of Paul's command to live a life in balance fitting consistent with what you believe and how you behave with who you're called and uh, you know how you act and if we can even do that among each other will we do it in front of our opponents? Will we live the life that is a sign that we belong to God in front of those who are headed for destruction? My hope and prayer is that we will. But I was spiritually floored Friday and most of Saturday, at least in my head, as I thought more and more about, are are we really ready to have this moment of confrontation if we can't even hardly have this moment if you're afraid of what someone's going to say on this side of the room what will you do when they threaten to take your house and plunder your income and hurt your body and it could happen it has for generations and centuries Last question you're wondering now is this, and this is when I'm wrapping up for real. Okay, Todd. Why should I aim for a yes to every one of those questions? Give me one reason why I should aim for a yes for every one of those diagnostic questions. Here's why. Because Jesus was unashamed of you. That's the answer. Jesus was unashamed of you. He was consistent in saying he loved you and then dying to show that he did love you. And this is really the point of Hebrews 2.11. When it says about Jesus, it's all in the context of suffering and the father knowing that it was only through the atoning, sacrificial death of his son that sinners would be redeemed. And so God ordained the crushing crucifixion of Christ. In that whole context, when Jesus did not run, here's what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. He is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Amen. Hallelujah, church. And so when you stand before God, Jesus will not run and hide and say, I don't know, Brian. I saw what he did last week. I heard about something they said a month ago. Jesus will stand in for you because he is unashamed of you. So be unashamed of him and stand up and stand for Jesus. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ.